Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, so this is Exodus 18. So it says, um, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for, the Is- and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zechariah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of the Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came in with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses and I, your father-in-law Jethro am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to the Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. In that he had delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because of this affair they have dealt um, arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statuses of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about their statuses and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times, Every great matter they shall bring to you, and any small matter that they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to this place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times, any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank You so much for this gathering this morning. We thank You that You have brought us together as a church family to worship You and to enjoy one another's fellowship and company. Lord, we're also thankful that as we gather, You meet with us, that You are present with us. And because You're present, we can expect to encounter You and to be ministered to by You. And Lord, we know that One of the primary ways that you do that is through your holy word. And so it's before your word that we sit now. And it's before your word that we expose our lives and our hearts. And we invite you by the power of the Holy Spirit to speak to us and teach us. To reveal things to us about who you are. And to reveal things to us about who we are. And Lord, we pray that through this time of looking at your word, that God, you would do a work in each one of our hearts and that you would do a mighty work in this church corporately. And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. A preacher had finished his Sunday morning sermon and he was standing at the back of the church and he was saying goodbye to everybody as they were leaving and a guy walked up to him and said, you know, it must be really great to be a pastor You only have to work for one hour every week. The pastor paused for a minute. He looked at him and he said, you know what's even better than that? Being an Olympic sprinter, you only have to work for 10 seconds once every four years. And I've shared that story with you before, but I bring it to your attention because it's actually a a pretty uh, fair illustration, I think, of the misconception that people can have about pastoral ministry. You know, a lot of times as a pastor, I'll have people ask me like, so what do you do all week? Like, what do pastors do? What does your job consist of? And it's a great question and it's an innocent question. But I I sat down this week and I thought, okay, let me just off the top of my head, just try to jot down like what a pastor does during the week. And these literally came off the top of my head. Here's a handful of things. Sermon preparation, preparing the Sunday worship service, preparing additional church services, casting vision, managing a staff, managing and developing leadership in the church, organizing and training volunteers for service, overseeing the various ministries of the church, preparing a budget, adhering to the budget, personal discipleship, praying for the members of the church, oversight of church website, oversight of social media profiles, maintaining church facilities, counseling members in the church, hospital visitations, weddings, funerals, maintaining relationships with other local pastors, maintaining relationships with our denomination, preparing additional teaching classes like membership classes, doing members' interviews, mobilizing the church for missions work, and of course, when you're not doing all of that, trying to do the work of evangelism by loving and reaching out to new people in our city. There's always another phone call you could make. There's always more prayers that you could pray. There's always another person that you could contact or get coffee with. Ministry is never ending. The only limits to a pastor's work hours are self-imposed. And that's why if you ask most pastors, is that a full-time job? The only way they can respond to you is by smiling at you. Now, I don't say any of this to make you feel sorry for me. Although if you do feel pity, I'll take pity hugs after service. But I'm not saying that so that you'll feel sorry for me by any stretch of the imagination. I love what I do because God has called me to do it. I bring all of this up, though, to set up for us this morning the impossible situation of the man Moses, who is the leader of Israel here in Exodus 
chapter 18. Because what I just described to you is the workload of a pastor in a relatively small church like our own. You can imagine then the weight of responsibility and the different things that could vie for a pastor's attention in a church of 1,000 members or 5,000 members. I want you to get this this morning. Moses was leading a congregation of people that numbered somewhere around 2 million people. We read earlier in Exodus that as they went out from Egypt, there were at least 600,000 men representing their families. This is the workload of Moses. And Moses, to his credit, is doing his very best to shepherd this massive body of people, the people of God. But guess what? It's not working very effectively. So God decides that this would be a great opportunity to do some organizational restructuring. Now, the good news for Moses is there won't be any layoffs, but there are going to be many new hires. To accomplish this restructuring, God uses a very unlikely person. His name is Jethro, and he's Moses' father-in-law. So the in-laws are coming to town. Thankfully, Moses had a great relationship with his father-in-law, Jethro. Now, why is Jethro the instrument that God is going to use to help Moses reorganize the people of God in such a way that everyone can be cared for? Well, two reasons come to mind. The first that we see explicitly in the text here is God used Jethro, of all people, for Jethro's own salvation. In other words, God was going to reach Jethro through Moses here in this passage to bring Jethro to a place of faith in him. And so much of what God does in the lives of his children, and so much of what God allows in the lives of his children is actually intended for the salvation of other people around us. People like family members who are watching on from the outside, people like co-workers or neighbors. A lot of what God is allowing in our lives or doing in our lives is intended to reach them with the gospel. See, Moses had left his wife Zipporah and his two sons with Jethro when he went down to do battle with Pharaoh. And that was wise. He didn't know what the outcome was going to be, so he left his family with his father-in-law, and he went down and he did battle with Pharaoh. But now, here in Exodus 18, God had delivered Israel from Pharaoh and from Egypt through the Red Sea. And now God is sustaining his people with manna from heaven and with quail and water in the wilderness as they journey along to the promised land. And so there's a little bit of a lull in the action here. And this is a perfect time now for Jethro to come and bring the family back to Moses. And as he does, we read there that Moses reaches his father-in-law. How did he do it? Well, just by telling his story of the amazing work that God had done in his life and the amazing work that God had done for his people Israel. Through just sharing this testimony, he actually witnesses to Jethro. Look at verse 8 of chapter 18. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So Moses is sitting down with his father-in-law. They catch up and then he just explains, this is what's happened. And I mean, this must have taken hours to explain this story. 
and God's supernatural intervention with the ten plagues and the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea and these miracles in the desert. And Moses is recounting all of this and the amazing thing happens that as he's sharing the word of God, as he's sharing the story of redemption, faith is born in Jethro's heart. And Jethro believes. Look at verse 10 through verse 12 in chapter 18. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And here's the key in verse 11. He says, now I know. So here's the belief. Here's the confidence. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. What a great reminder to us. All of us have family members who right now are far from the Lord, who don't believe the gospel. And all of us, as God is continuing to do a mighty work of deliverance in our lives, yes, it begins at conversion, but it's continuing through the rest of our lives. And as God is transforming us and God is healing broken relationships and God is changing our hearts and the affections and the desires and the pursuits in our lives, people in our family are going to notice that and it gives us opportunity to testify not to our greatness, not to the wonderful changes we're making, but to God's power and God's grace that is working in us and that is also available to them. And so often God uses family to reach family. So the first reason why God would use Jethro to help reorganize the people of Israel is because God loved Jethro and God wanted to reach Jethro. But beyond Jethro's salvation, I think Jethro's experience has something to do with it as well. See, Jethro, before his conversion, had served as the priest in Midian. As the priest in Midian, Jethro had extensive experience in dealing with people and handling their issues and their problems as they would have come to him for guidance. Moses, however, was brand new to all of this. Moses had spent the last 40 years of his life tending sheep and talking to rocks and trees in the wilderness. He probably wasn't the most capable with people and managing uh, people and managing their problems. Jethro had this experience though, and he was able to come in and look at what was going on and go, hmm, this is not good. Moses, try this thought on for size. And I just find it so encouraging and so amazing that this and many other examples in scripture show us how God will take the past experiences of our lives. Listen, even some of the past experiences before Christ, some of the things that you were doing before you ever even came into the family of God, and he can still use those things and recycle, reduce, and reuse. He can repackage those things now for his purposes and for his glory and for the good of the church. And it's so wonderful. So God looks at all of us and he evaluates the different things that we bring to the table and he's able to craft and use those things now for his glory. So Jethro is able to put his finger on the problem that he sees. Drop down with me to verse 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? 
Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Now we'll drop down to verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. The people, as we read there, were lined up from the morning all the way to the evening, and Moses had barely scratched the surface of the caseload. Lots of people stood there all day long only to be turned away and have to wait another day for justice, wait another day for guidance and counsel. This was worse than the lines at Disneyland, you guys. Don't you hate the lines at Disneyland? And they have the signs which are meant to be helpful, but it's like approximate wait time, six days. You're like, okay, we'll turn around. We're not going to ride that ride today. Thank God for fast pass though. That's very helpful. But these people are waiting all day long in the hot sun and they never get to see Moses. And Jethro is looking at this and he's seeing this problem. He's going, this is not good. You are not able to handle the workload. This is going to burn you out, Moses. And it's going to keep you from doing the many other important tasks that you need to attend to. But it's also going to burn the people out. They're going to be exasperated as these people are just waiting, again, for justice in disputes that they have with one another. And they're waiting for counsel and guidance about God's will in their life. And so Jethro knows this is a problem. And I think the first thing that really stands out to us from this story is this, Moses' insufficiency to shepherd the people of God. Moses was not sufficient in and of himself. Jethro's solution, as we're going to see, is you need to get some help from your friends. But he's insufficient in and of himself to effectively shepherd the people of God. Of God. In verse 10, we see there that Moses is functioning as the prophet. We see in verse 10 it says, or hold on, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong verse here. In verse, sixteen, we see Moses functioning as a prophet. He says, When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And then here's the key. I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses is operating as prophet, telling them this is God's law, this is God's word, but he's also functioning as their judge. We see that in verse 13. He sits to judge the people. And then down in verse 15, we see that he's also functioning as their intermediary. He's inquiring of God on their behalf. So Moses is doing an awful lot for the people. But guess what, church? Moses is limited in his capacity. Moses is just one guy. Moses can't possibly, in and of his own resources, tend to every person or deal with every issue or be available for every need in Israel. As gifted, as godly, as called, as equipped as Moses is, guess what? He's not God. So he's insufficient. But the insufficiency of Moses should immediately take all of our hearts and point all of our attention this morning on the sufficiency of Christ to shepherd the people of God. See, Jesus is not like Moses. Jesus, God become man, is unlimited in his capacity. Jesus is the good shepherd. In 1 Peter, Jesus is the chief shepherd. Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. 
Jesus will be with us always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said, of all that the Father has given to me, I will lose not even one. He's able to handle the workload of being the good shepherd of God's people. The people went to Moses to get to God, but church, listen. In Christ, God came to us. And the people under Moses had restricted access to God because of their sin. But Christ has dealt with our sin at the cross, where God placed the sin of his people upon Christ, and Jesus destroyed our sin. So that now for all of us who have turned to Christ in faith and are trusting in him as our Savior, listen, we have unlimited access to God forever. Jesus is sufficient to shepherd the people of God. In him, we are in constant, unrestricted fellowship with our God. Praise the Lord. Okay, pastor, what practical advice is there in this text for us? We love looking to Jesus and seeing him as our savior and our treasure. What other practical advice can we learn from this text? Well, let's first begin with the wisdom for the man of God then. What is it that Jethro actually instructs Moses to do? Let's understand that. And then we're going to look at wisdom for the church today. Wisdom for the man of God then. Because Moses was insufficient to carry this burden of shepherding God's people alone, Jethro offered him wise counsel. And there's two things you'll notice in the text that he says to him. Here's the counsel. First, he says, don't quit what you're doing. This is in verses 19 and 20. Jethro says, now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and, mu- and what they must do. So again, in other words, he's saying, keep on doing what you're doing. Don't quit your job, Moses. You're still going to be the intermediary. You're still going to speak to them as God's prophet. You're still going to judge their cases. So keep doing what you're doing. But secondly, here's his advice. He says, delegate the workload to other godly men. So we'll continue on in verse 21. Jethro says, Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. He says, if you do this, God will direct you and you will be able to endure and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So he says, delegate the workload to other godly men. This is gonna make it easier for you, Moses. And this is going to allow the people to actually have their needs met. Now notice that, that what he's not telling Moses to do is shirk his responsibility And he's also not telling him to hoard all the responsibility. Jethro's advice here is so wise and so helpful because it actually avoids the two unhealthy extremes of delegation, right? On one hand, you can have the type of leader who delegates everything to other people so that she or he can sit back on the beach and drink Mai Tais all day. 
And then that type of a leader will take all the credit for the organization's success or place all the blame for the organization's failures. So that's one extreme, the leader who delegates everything. Jethro's saying, don't do that. You continue doing your job. But of course, the other unhealthy extreme is the type of leader who delegates, right, nothing, right? Who delegates nothing. The type of leader who says, I'm going to hold on to everything. I need control over everything. I have to micromanage everything. Every problem comes to me. And that type of a leader limits the effectiveness of the organization. That type of leader generally burns themselves out. And that type of leader exasperates the people as they're not able to exercise their gifts and as they're not able to do the job as well as it could be done. And so Jethro's guidance is avoiding actually both of these pitfalls and it finds the happy medium. Jethro says, Moses, stay on task, stay on mission, keep the calling that God has given to you and empower other godly people to share in the mission with you. It's awesome. It's brilliant. So Moses is going to continue to speak and to teach the word of God publicly so that he can guide the people of God in the word of God. And then when specific needs for guidance arise that all of the other judges who are going to be set up in Israel are confused on, Moses is going to be brought in sort of as the Supreme Court in Israel to help them seek out the will of God in those cases. It's brilliant. This is the wisdom that Jethro gives to Moses then. So church, as a final move for us in our sermon this morning, what is the wisdom for the people of God today? What What are we supposed to take away from this and apply to our own lives and to our church? Well, two things from our text. Wisdom for us today. The first is a shared ministry model. A shared ministry model. It's not an accident that this same principle, this same idea of a delegated leadership resurfaces and is further developed in the New Testament when you come to the age of the church. Pastors, like Moses, are not God. Everyone say amen. Pastors are not God. They're like Moses. They're humans. They're limited. They're frail. They're weak. They're insufficient for all of your needs. We don't need another amen there, but it's true. Pastors cannot meet every need. Pastors cannot be available for every problem inside of the church, and certainly not for every problem that surfaces in our broader community. And that's why in the New Testament, The way that the church is to operate is with a shared ministry model. Let me show you the ways that ministry is shared in the church. It begins in the New Testament with a team of elders. Elders in the New Testament, the word elder is a synonym for pastor. So when I use elder or when the New Testament uses the word elder, think pastor. Think a person like me. The scriptures are teaching that the healthiest way we could organize a church is to not just have one pastor in the church, but to have a team of pastors that are sharing the workload of teaching God's people and leading the church. Here's Acts chapter 20, verse 17. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus. This is the Apostle Paul. He's on a missionary journey. He sends to Ephesus. He's in Miletus, which is a coastal town. And he sends inland to the church at Ephesus, and he calls the elders, notice the plural there, the elders of the church, to come to him. 
So it's not just he calls the pastor of the church. He calls the elders, the group of pastors to come to him. Next verse is Titus 1.5. Paul writes to his young protege in the faith named Titus. And Paul writes, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Again, notice the plural use of the word elder. He's appointing not one, but a group of elders in every town, meaning in every church in each city. And then finally, in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, Peter writes, So I exhort the elders, plural, among you. So he's writing to a church, but he's writing to the elders in this chapter, among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So all over the New Testament, we see this emphasis on, again, not just a single pastor model in a church. Not that if a church only has one pastor, it ceases to be a church. But a church is more healthy, and I would say is properly ordered when it has a team of elders or a team of pastors that are sharing the responsibilities of teaching God's people and leading the church. The second way that the New Testament, though, communicates a shared ministry model gets beyond just the pastors. In the New Testament, we see that there's a call not just for the church to have elders, but elders and deacons, which is another office in the church. We see deacons in Acts chapter 6. This is the beginning of this office in the church. Here's what we read. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Translation, there were non-Jewish widows in the church who were not getting their needs met. Only the Jewish widows were, so there was a complaint. And the 12, meaning the 12 apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so you see in this text that there's a need in the church and the apostles who are teaching God's word and who are leading the church are saying, listen, we need to select other people from among us who can handle these needs. And this begins the office of deacon. We see the deacons referenced again in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul writes, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So in the church, as far as leadership is concerned, the New Testament teaches that we should have a team of pastors and that we should have a team of deacons and deaconesses in the church. And this is why it's so exciting for us here at Apostles right now for the season of church life that we're in, because in the fall, we're going to be recommending men and women for these very roles in our church, recommending them to the congregation to be affirmed in our church. What a blessing that's going to be. Finally, we see this shared ministry model in the New Testament when we look at the priesthood of all believers. 
Friends, let me tell you, ministry is not just for quote-unquote leaders. Ministry is supposed to exist for all of us. The New Testament teaches that all of us are priests before God. All of us have access to God and all of us represent God and serve God to other people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, we read, You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, and here it is again, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he says, look, all of us as the people of God are a priesthood. All of us have a ministry, which is telling the world about how amazing God is. And then in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, we read that Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Hold that there for one second. So notice, shepherds and teachers in the church are equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. The New Testament has a shared ministry model where there's a team of elders leading the church, where there's deacons and deaconesses fulfilling many different service roles in the church, and where every member of the church is equipped to evangelize the lost, to pray for people who are in need, to serve those who have needs, to love one another, to encourage one another, and to serve the body of Christ. All of us are called to do that. And we see that here in this text. Our application is that we have a shared ministry model in the church. But the second thing that we see in this text that we can apply to our lives today is the sufficiency of God's word for people's problems. And this is so important, church. We see the sufficiency of God's word for people's problems. Moses was called to teach God's word, to make the people understand the statutes and the law of God so that they would know how to live their lives, so they would know how to handle their problems. And we are living in a time where there is a growing number of Christians who are doubting the sufficiency of God's word to handle all of life's problems. Increasingly, Christians are more interested in seeing a therapist than seeing a biblical counselor or a pastor. Increasingly, Christians see scripture as a tool that can give me some insight into who I am, but without Enneagram, I'd never come to a place of real self-understanding. I remember the first time I heard about Enneagram, I was talking to somebody and they told me that they were type two. And I was like, I didn't know you were diabetic. And they were like, no, 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 I'm type two Enneagram. I'm like, what is that? So I had to go Google it later. What is Enneagram? And look into all of that. Now, church, listen, I'm, I'm not saying that a therapist or even a secular book on psychology or personality profiling tools like Enneagram or Myers-Briggs can't be helpful. That's not what I'm saying. 
But what I am trying to emphasize to us this morning is that even though some of those things might be helpful, none of those things are essential. Not one of them. None of them are essential to your life. Christians for centuries have proved verses like the following to be true. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him, i.e. his word, who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Where do we find those? His word. And what do they do? So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Do you see how profound that is? In God's word, he's given us everything we need that pertains to life and to godliness, everything that we need to become like Christ and to get away from all of the sinful and destructive patterns in our life. Consider 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness that the person of God may be semi-equipped, sort of prepared, halfway there. No, no, no. It says so that the, the person of God may be complete. Some translations say perfect, meaning at a place of complete competency, equipped for every good work. And that's why these trends that, that we're seeing in the church are so concerning. I'm concerned that there are Christians who think of their identity in terms of type two more readily than in terms of child of God. That is our foundation. That is our understanding is what God's word is telling us. And oh, that God would once again convince his church that his word is sufficient for our lives, that we could turn to his word over and over and over again. So again, to be clear, I'm not saying things like a therapist or a personality profiling tool cannot be helpful, but I am saying that they're not essential. What is essential to handling life's challenges and what is essential to forming us into the image of Christ is the word of Christ. After all, Hebrews 4.12 tells us that it's the word of God that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, that's deeper than Enneagram, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Consider Psalm 19, 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Church, we have got to believe that. We have got to practice that. We have got to be a people that are giving ourselves constantly to the word of Christ. Because listen, when we hear the word of God, we are hearing the very voice of God speaking to us. As a church this morning, in conclusion, we're reminded that all human leaders are insufficient for handling your needs and your problems. And that's because the only sufficient shepherd for God's people is God himself. 
Jesus, God become man, is the perfect shepherd. There is more than enough of him for every one of us. All of your needs can be met in the person of Jesus. He is inexhaustible in his time and his resources. So we can go to him for every problem. We can go to him with every problem. But it's also because human leaders cannot handle our deepest problem. I can give you counsel. I can give you guidance. But I cannot save you from your sins. Our deepest issue is our sin. Our access to God would always be limited because of our sin, if not for Christ, who has taken away our sin. Therefore, in the church, we look to Christ as our chief shepherd, and we look to our pastors and leaders as mere under-shepherds who help to point us back to Jesus Christ. And not only to our pastors and leaders, but to one another as well, as we exhort one another every day and stir up one another to love and good works as Hebrews tells us. And church, finally, we've been reminded that the primary tool that we have available to us to do this is the word of God. Therefore, let us follow Paul's admonition to the Colossians in Colossians 3.16, where he writes, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We're going to conclude by doing that this morning. So let's pray, and then we will sing songs to the Lord. God, you are so good to us. And we can't help but just pause day after day after day and just say, we love you. We're so thankful for you. Where would we be without you? We'd be lost. We'd be hopeless. And yet, because of your great love for us, you have delivered us from our sins through the death of your own son, Jesus, who willingly laid down his life, the God-man, able to pay for all of our sins. And he died in our place and three days later rose again from the grave, conquering our greatest enemy, which is death. And now because Christ lives, all of us who have put our faith in him and are united to him, We'll live in him for all of eternity. This is such good news. And so, Lord, we praise you because it's all your work. Lord, we're so thankful this morning for the gift of the church. Lord, we love the church, not because the church is perfect, certainly not because the people in the church are perfect, but we love the church because the head of the church is perfect. And that's you, Jesus and we love you and we know that you love us and you gave yourself for us to make us a holy people set apart for you. And so, Lord, this morning as we draw near to worship you in song and as we gather around the Lord's table and receive communion today, God, we pray that our hearts would once again be filled with love and gratitude and awe and worship, but also, Lord, that we would once again renew our commitment to be people who are putting off that old woman or that old man and putting on that new person in Christ and that we would be a people who are constantly encouraging one another in the church, building one another up in the church and helping this to be a place where the word of God is active and powerful and is our greatest tool at seeing transformation in our lives. Lord, help us accomplish these great ends for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.